Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Joseph Jenkins Knapp Jr. was expecting to receive a sizable inheritance upon the death of his 82-year-old great-uncle, Captain Joseph White. But with debts piling up, Knapp decided he couldn't wait for natural causes. He and his brother John Francis Knapp, also known as Frank, hired a hitman to murder him. And then things got way out of their control. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. In 1830, when this tale unfolds, Captain Joseph White was a wealthy retired shipmaster and trader who lived in a grand home at 128 Essex Street in Salem, Massachusetts. He employed Benjamin White, a distant relative who was the house handyman, Lydia Kimball, a domestic worker, and Mary White Beckford, his niece and housekeeper. Mary White Beckford's daughter, also named Mary, lived a short distance away in the town of Wenham, and she was married to Captain White's grandnephew, Joseph Jenkins Knapp Jr., Joseph Jr. learned through his mother-in-law that White had changed his will, and he was angry that he would be getting less inheritance than he had expected, and that his wife's family, too, had been impacted. He had an idea. He got greedy, is what he got. White was a widower and had no children. He did have potential heirs, though, the children of his siblings. His brother had four children and his sister had one. If he didn't name an heir, his wealth could legally have been split in basically one of two ways. If Captain White's assets were distributed per capita, each niece and nephew would receive an equal one-fifth of the total fortune. Alternatively, if it was divided per stirpes, then each branch of the family would receive an equal share of his estate, meaning his brother and his sister would both receive 50%. Joseph Jr. convinced himself that if his great-uncle died without a will, his mother-in-law, White's niece, would be in a position to inherit a significant amount of that fortune. 
And he believed that money would go directly to right into his own pocket. He was incorrect on all of this, but he didn't know that. The captain was a wealthy member of the White family, but he wasn't necessarily a beloved family member. He was known to be a bit of a tyrant when it came to his money, and he was known to weaponize and exploit how he would distribute his assets after his death to get what he wanted while he was still alive. The captain did not much like Joseph Jr., who had worked for him, and he considered him a, quote, lazy, cowardly fortune hunter. When his grandniece Mary Beckford married Joseph Jr. without White's consent, he disinherited her and fired Knapp from his employment. This event is what sets our story in motion. Joseph Jr. conspired, first, with his brother Frank, to hire local criminal Richard Crowninshield to murder Captain Joseph White. The Knapp brothers had known Richard and his brother George since they were all teenagers, and Frank made the deal. Next, to decide when. On the night of April 2nd, 1830, they finalized the plan. It was decided it would take place on April 6th, a night when they knew Mary White Beckford would be in Wenham at Joseph Jr.'s home with her daughter. Four days before the murder, so pretty close to the time they made this decision, Joseph Jr. looted the captain's iron chest, stealing what he erroneously believed to be White's legal will. An iron chest generally was used to store important and sometimes secret papers. But there was another will, a newer version favoring his nephew Stephen White, and that will was not in his home, it was secured in the office of his lawyer. Unaware of his mistake, Joseph Jr. hid the will that he had and then burned it after the murder. Basically, he ordered White's death to get his hands on a fortune that would never be his to have. On April 6th, Joseph Jr. visited the captain's home, and before leaving, he unlocked the back parlor window. That night, murderer for hire Richard Crowninshield entered the house through the unlatched window, reaching it by climbing a wooden plank. He went to the captain's bedroom, where he then clubbed White in the head and stabbed him multiple times with a long dagger known as a dirk while he slept. Neither of the Knapp brothers entered the house that night. The next morning, Benjamin White woke at 6 a.m., and upon opening the shutters of the kitchen window, observed that the back window of the parlor was unexpectedly open. Also unexpectedly, a plank was raised to the window from the backyard. The captain's bedroom door, upon investigation, was also unexpectedly open. White was lying in his bed, his clothing and bedding saturated with blood. Nothing in the house, including valuables, appeared to have been tampered with. Nothing seemed to be missing. Stephen White was a prominent Salem merchant and political leader, and he was also the captain's favored nephew. We've seen him referred to as White's adopted son. They were that tight. He was also the principal heir to the captain's fortune. Immediately upon hearing of the death, Stephen sent for William Ward, who had been Joseph White's clerk and business assistant for many years, and Samuel Johnson, a prominent Salem physician. Ward made an interesting note from the crime scene. Near the plank left at the open window, he discovered two footprints. This was still decades before footprints were considered important evidence, or evidence at all, 
but Ward covered them with a milk pan to secure them from tampering and from weather in case they could be helpful. Upon cursory examination of the body, Dr. Johnson concluded that the death had occurred as little as three to four hours earlier. He noted 13 stab wounds, five in the region of the heart, three near the left nipple, and five others placed as though White's arms had been lifted up and he had been stabbed underneath. He also determined a blow to the head was the initial wound. And he concluded that a full autopsy should be conducted. Dr. Johnson, assisted by his colleague, Dr. Abel Pearson, performed the autopsy on April 8th. It was agreed that the skull fracture was due to a single severe blow from something like a cane or a bludgeon. The chest wounds they determined were caused by a dirk and noted that its cross guard had struck the ribs with enough force to break them. Though Johnson believed there was one assailant, Pearson was not so sure. Stephen White gave the Salem Gazette permission to publish the autopsy findings, no matter how gruesome. And that report read in part, quote, a fracture of the skull bone was discovered, the largest diameter of which was three and a half inches. This portion of bone was depressed below the level of the surrounding skull and was somewhat loose and movable. On examining the heart, there were found at its apex two wounds. Also, a little nearer the base of the heart were two long slits. The slits were found connected with the perforations and were evidently produced by the same blows. The posterior and inferior portion of the left lung was likewise perforated in several places. The residents of Salem were shocked. One, that there'd been a murder, but two, a murder of such a prominent citizen. Contrary to his behavior with his family, people in town considered White to be quite amicable. They organized a 27-member group they called a Committee of Vigilance, also known as the Vigilance Committee, to investigate. Vigilante groups like this are typically citizens who organize outside of legal authority to keep order and punish criminals because they believe the usual legal agencies to be inadequate, or in some cases, those agencies just don't exist. The committee was sanctioned to do things law enforcement could not, such as, quote, search any house without a warrant and interrogate every individual. So if you're thinking, but... Yes, you are right. This was in direct opposition to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, but that's not what the citizens of Salem were worried about in that moment. They were worried about a brutal murderer at large. Rewards, and some quite sizable, were offered for information leading to the perpetrator or perpetrators, and for any information about the crime. Immediately after the captain's death, Stephen White offered a $1,000 reward. Soon after, the town fathers offered $500 for information about the crime. There were many articles published addressing moral outrage in Salem, as well as general confusion among its residents, and the press seemed to print more commentary than actual news. On April 9th, the Salem Gazette published, quote, A murder has been perpetrated so horrible and atrocious that we should in vain search the records of crime in any country for a case exceeding it in enormity. The single purpose of the perpetrator seems to have been the taking of life. The next day, the Salem Observer reported on the climate this created among residents of Salem, stating, quote, The imagination of everyone is busy, not only devising possible ways 
in which the assassin proceeded to execute his hellish purpose, but also in framing adequate motives for his conduct. About three weeks after the murder, while emotions were still running very high, the Knapp brothers came forward to falsely testify before the Vigilance Committee that on the night prior to the murder, they were approached near Wenham Pond by three robbers who had come upon their carriage while they were returning from Salem to their home in Wenham, a journey that's less than 10 miles. One of them grabbed the horse's bridle, and the other two stole a small trunk they were carrying in the bottom of their carriage. And that tall tale, that just added to the confusion of the scene, and it led many to fear that there was a gang of criminals at work in their village. We're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsors. When we return, we will talk about how authorities started to close in on the perpetrator, who sent blackmail letters to whom, and who gave a detailed written confession about the whole thing. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? 
Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text. And it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's keep moving along with the case, specifically when and how investigators finally got their first clue. There were no clues in the case until Stephen White received a letter from a jailer roughly 80 miles away in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was holding a relatively unknown petty thief who stated that he knew a man named Richard Crowninshield who had told him that he intended to kill Captain Joseph White in Salem. Following up on this lead, the Vigilance Committee learned that the prisoner, named Hatch, had been arrested for shoplifting and had been in jail the night of White's murder, but had some interesting information about White's death. During questioning, the committee learned that a few months before the murder, back in February, before Hatch was incarcerated, he had overheard Richard and George Crowninshield discussing their intent to steal Joseph White's iron chest. He also overheard them discussing their murderous intentions at the gambling house that night. The Crown and Shields were a notable and wealthy local family. Richard and George, though, preferred spending their time in, quote, haunts of vice. The Committee of Vigilance brought Hatch to testify before a Salem grand jury, after which, on May 5th, Richard Crowninshield was indicted for murder. George Crowninshield, as well as two men who'd been in the gambling house that same night as Hatch, were charged with abetting the crime. The two men, Selman and Chase, were soon discharged. About a week later, on May 14th, Joseph J. Knapp Sr., father of the Knapp brothers, received correspondence from a Mr. Charles Grant of Belfast, Maine, who was demanding a large sum of money to avoid, quote, ruinous disclosures regarding the Knapps. Grant wrote, quote, I am acquainted with your brother Franklin and also the business that he was transacting for you on the 2nd of April last, and that I think you were very extravagant in giving $1,000 to the person that would execute the business for you. You see, such things will break out. This letter, a blackmail letter, made no sense to Joseph Sr. He didn't know anyone by the name of Charles Grant. He had no acquaintances in Belfast, Maine, and he was completely boggled why he needed to pay $350. Alarmed, he consulted with his sons. And Joseph Jr., the letter's intended recipient, called it, quote, a devilish lot of trash and he advised his father to take it to the Vigilance Committee. And Joseph Sr. did just that. And then Joseph Jr. wrote two letters, both claiming to be from Charles Grant. The first letter was sent to the Committee of Vigilance, in which he claimed that he, now remember Joseph Jr. is pretending here to be Grant, had been hired to murder Joseph White by the captain's nephew, Stephen White. The second letter from the fake Grant was sent to Stephen White, demanding payment for the murder and read as follows, quote, Mr. White, send $5,000 or part of it before tomorrow night or suffer the painful consequences. Grant. Things were getting tense. According to one published account, one of Stephen White's brothers-in-law, discovering that Stephen had inherited the bulk of the captain's estate, quote, seized White by the collar 
shook him violently in the presence of family, and then he accused him of being the murderer. And as we know, he got that wrong. The Vigilance Committee sent $50 anonymously to Grant, promising to send more. They also sent a messenger to Belfast, Maine, where they'd arranged to arrest at the post office whomever came to retrieve Grant's mail. When a man identifying as their target collected the extortion money, he was taken into custody. But Grant, it turned out, wasn't Charles Grant either. He was an ex-convict named Palmer, and he was a friend and associate of Richard Crowninshield. He had been privy to the whole murderous plot, and he knew it was the Knapp brothers who instigated the entire thing. Palmer was detained as a possible accessory to the captain's murder and was promised immunity for his testimony against the perpetrators. Palmer made the following statement, quote, I have been an associate of George and Richard Crown and Shield, and on April 2nd, 1830, I was sitting by a window in their house and saw Frank Knapp drive up. The Crown and Shield brothers and Knapp then went for a walk. Upon their return, George and Richard informed me that Frank Knapp had asked them to kill Mr. White and that Joseph Knapp Jr. would pay $1,000 for the job. Several different modes of executing it were discussed, but it was finally decided to kill him at night when Mrs. Beckford was not home. After his testimony and the discovery that the false letters written to the committee and to Stephen White were in Joseph Jr.'s handwriting, warrants for the arrests of the Knapp brothers were procured. Richard Crowninshield initially was certain that he would be found innocent. He kept quiet after his arrest. After all, he knew if he implicated Frank or Joseph Jr., he would be confessing to his own role in the crime. During his imprisonment, he asked for books on mathematics as well as Cicero's orations, but everything changed for him when Joseph Jr. confessed to his role in the murder plot. It was on his third day of imprisonment when Knapp made a full confession. He laid it all out, from his motive, to his role in planning the murder, to fabricating the story of being robbed, and for forging blackmail letters. The confession document was penned by the Reverend Henry Coleman, a close friend of the White family, but was signed by Knapp. That confession was nine pages long, and we'll share some of the details that he provided. Quote, I knew that Mr. White had made out a will in which he gave my mother-in-law, Mrs. Beckford, a legacy of $15,000. According to my understanding of the law, which I have since learned was erroneous, I believed she would get $200,000 if no will was found. I therefore decided to steal the will and have Mr. White assassinated. My brother Frank negotiated with Richard Crowninshield, who agreed to do the deed for $1,000. Crown and Shield and my brother Frank met at 10 o'clock that night by appointment and proceeded to a spot where they could observe the movements in White's mansion. It was a beautiful moonlit night. Crown and Shield requested Frank to go home. He left, but soon returned. His confession continued, quote, During his absence, the lights in the mansion were extinguished, and shortly afterward, the hired assassin placed a plank against the house, entered the window, and crept upstairs to White's sleeping chamber. Crown and Shield swung his bludgeon and struck White on the left temple, probably killing him instantly. But to be certain, he lowered the bedclothes and stabbed him repeatedly in the region of the heart. He then felt his pulse 
and being satisfied that the job was well done, he departed. He met Frank on a side street. After hiding the bludgeon under the steps of a meeting house on Howard Street, he returned to Danvers. I was home in Wenham on this night. Joseph Jr. continued, quote, A few days later, Crown and Shield, accompanied by my brother Frank, called on me at my home in Wenham and demanded his money. I was only able to pay him 105 franc pieces. He related to me all the details of the assassination, and I informed him that our work had been all in vain, that the will I stole was not the last one, and even if it had been, my object would not have been accomplished because of my misunderstanding of the law. The story my brother and I told the Vigilance Committee on April 27th in regard to the alleged robbery was a sheer fabrication. And he added, quote, it was I who wrote the two anonymous letters. Of the weapons used, Joseph Jr. described them as, quote, The bludgeon was two feet long, turned of hardwood and ornamented, with beads at the end to keep it from slipping. The dirk was about five inches long on the blade, sharp at both edges and tapering to a point. Officers immediately proceeded to the meeting house on Howard Street, where they found the bludgeon described by Knapp exactly where he said, under the steps. We're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsors. And when we're back, we will introduce lead prosecutor Daniel Webster and why it was such a big deal that he signed on to this case. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Criminalia. We're going to talk about the details of the trial, but before we do, we have to address another life taken. This story is just tragedy upon tragedy, and here we have another. When he learned about Joseph Jr.'s confession, Richard, seeing no hope, on June 15th took his own life in his jail cell. That act, in the eyes of the law, created a problem. Here's why. The Knapp brothers were to have been tried as accessories to murder. But under the existing law of the time, accessories to murder couldn't be convicted unless the actual murderer was first convicted. Crown and Shield had been the actual murderer, the principal in the crime, and now he couldn't be tried. But still, they went on with the trials, and we'll explain how that problem was resolved in just a moment. The case was heard by Judges Marcus Morton, Samuel Putnam, and Samuel S. Wilde, and tried before the Salem Division of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Frank Knapp's trial began during the court's July term. His brother Joseph Jr.'s began in November that same year. Joseph Jr. was promised immunity if he would testify for the prosecution, but when he was called to the stand, he refused to testify against his brother. A strong case was made, however, without his assistance. And that's because Stephen White asked lawyer, lawmaker, and future Secretary of State Daniel Webster to prosecute the case. Webster didn't immediately jump at the chance. Not yet 50, he had already served several terms in the House of Representatives before being elected to the United States Senate in 1827. He was known as a distinguished defense attorney and called the great Daniel Webster because his courtroom skills were impeccable and his oration very persuasive. We'll emphasize again, defense attorney. He also considered that his personal connections with the victim's relatives raised some issues over legal ethics. But in the end, he agreed, and he was paid a fee of $1,000 by Stephen White to assist the prosecution. Although this really meant that he was leading the prosecution. With a bit of legal paperwork, an indictment for murder was found against Frank Knapp, with Joseph J. Knapp Jr. and George Crowninshield named as accessories to that murder. Webster began by addressing the jury regarding his switch from defense to prosecution as follows, quote, I am a little accustomed, gentlemen, to the part which I am now attempting to perform. Hardly more than once or twice has it happened to me to be concerned on the side of the government in any criminal prosecution, whatever, and never until the present occasion, in any case, affecting life. He described Captain White's murder as, quote, a most extraordinary case. In some respects, it has hardly a precedent anywhere, certainly none in our New England history. This bloody drama exhibited no suddenly excited, ungovernable rage. The actors in it were not surprised by any lion-like temptation springing upon their virtue and overcoming it before resistance could begin. 
nor did they do the deed to glut savage vengeance or satiate long-settled and deadly hate. It was a cool, calculating, money-making murder. It was all higher in salary, not revenge. It was the weighing of money against life, the counting out of so many pieces of silver against so many ounces of blood. Frank Knapp's defense, attorneys Franklin Dexter and W.H. Gardner, argued that Knapp had been outside the house standing in the street at least 300 feet away from the bedroom where the murder took place. Trying to keep the focus of the trial on the fact that Webster had not satisfied the legal requirements for conviction, the defense stated, quote, Upon this evidence, the prisoner cannot be convicted as a principal in the murder. A principal in the second degree, according to the law of England, is by our statutes an accessory before the fact and cannot be tried until there has been a conviction of the principal. In response to this, Webster stated, quote, To constitute a presence... It is sufficient if the accomplice is in a place, either where he may render aid to the perpetrator of the felony or where the perpetrator supposes he may render aid. If they selected the place to afford assistance, whether it was well or ill chosen for that purpose, is immaterial. The perpetrator would derive courage and confidence from the knowledge that his associate was in the place appointed. Technically, the law supported the defense, so it was not an easy case for Webster to argue or for a jury to decide. Without Richard as the principal in the murder case, Webster had to establish that Frank Knapp had been more than an accessory. He argued that Frank wasn't just casually waiting outside on Brown Street. He asserted that Frank gave direct aid to the murderer. The jury deliberated for 25 hours before announcing that they were deadlocked. The judge declared a mistrial and the case was retried two days later. It was reported that the crowds of people trying to enter the courtroom to watch Webster were like, quote, the tide boiling up on the rocks. He was charismatic and he was a force of nature. Webster addressed the jury again, stating, quote, are the Cronin Shields and the Knapps innocent? What is innocence? How deep stained with blood, how reckless in crime, how deep in depravity may it be, and yet retain innocence? The law is made, if we would speak with entire accuracy, to protect the innocent by punishing the guilty. But there are those innocent out of court, as well as innocent prisoners at the bar. This time, it took just five hours of deliberation. The jury agreed with Webster that John Francis Knapp, who we have been calling Frank, was principal to the crime and convicted him of murder. Four months later, Joseph Jr. was convicted as well. The Knapp brothers were both sentenced to execution by hanging, Frank on September 28, 1830, and Joseph Jr. on December 31, 1830. And George Crown and Shields? Don't worry, we did not forget about him, but he dropped out of the story when he proved that he had spent the night of the murder with two women. Both of those women provided him with an alibi, and he was acquitted. In the end, this became one of the first cases in which accessories to murder were tried, convicted, and executed despite the fact that the actual murderer was never convicted. So also, it's true that fictional murder mysteries are often based on real murders, right? And this is one of those murders. Not for its outcome, 
or that White had been wealthy, but because of Daniel Webster and his outstanding legal performance. The trials spawned pamphlets and broadsides, and many scholars believe that American writer Edgar Allan Poe relied heavily on Webster's oratory prowess when writing the dramatic and deliberate speech of the narrator in his short story, The Telltale Heart, which he first published in 1843. Poe pops up a lot on the show. <laughs> Poe is everywhere. He takes influence out of a lot of things in life. Of course he does. Would you like to have a little coercion concoction After while we... that story? Yes. ...consider this case? <laughs> this was an interesting one for me. I accidentally made something better than I intended to, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Because I knew from the beginning I wanted to call this drink blunt force. Because that was the manner of death. Which I know is a little grisly, but I thought, oh, I'll make a really strong drink that is maybe not uh, a soft, delicious sip but has its own unique thing. I ended up making something delicious. I'm sorry. So (laughs) (laughs) it's going to also shock you because it involves, we're going to kick right off with something that I am not, some people love, but I have been very open. I don't especially love it. I also was a little inspired by drinks like the Sazerac coming into being around this time, although in New Orleans, not in Massachusetts. But so we're going to start with a glazed glass. That's my Sazerac inspiration here. And you're going to glaze your rocks glass with Campari. (laughs) Wow. I know, right? Pour a little bit in, roll it around in there to glaze the whole interior, Mm -hmm. and then fill it with ice and let that sit and get cold while you were making the rest of the drink. So then into your shaker, you were going to put three quarters of an ounce of freshly squeezed lime juice, a quarter ounce of orgeat, a half ounce of Saint-Germain or another elderflower liqueur, And then an ounce and a half of rum. Take this and get it nice and cold and strain it into your glazed glass. Had this been the end of the drink, you would have been like, oh, yeah, this is what you wanted to do. But I didn't love it. I wanted it to be at least a little more tasty. It was just too heavy. It wasn't bad. kept going. But it was too heavy. And then I was like, you know what I bought recently on a whim? Some blood orange ginger beer. Oh, my gosh. So I just added not very much an ounce to an ounce and a half on top of it. And it suddenly became the most delicious, interesting. It's a little complex. Mm -hmm. I get a little bit of almost a prickly effect on my lips from the Campari because it's bitter. And it's right there at the glass. But it's so incredibly delicious. I will say this in case you're like, blood orange, ginger beer. Where am I going to find that? The answer is, it's actually pretty easy these days. It's quite popular. If you cannot, though, don't worry, I got you. If you can find blood oranges, you can add about a half ounce of blood orange juice and regular ginger beer. That's an option, like an ounce of ginger beer. If you don't have that either, you can do a half ounce of grapefruit juice with a couple dashes of bitters and then your ginger beer. And that is the blunt force. Now. The mocktail for this, we got to skip the glaze. I don't know a good way to approximate Campari. And it's very unique, very bitter (laughs) liqueur. Call it it bitter again. Do not worry, though. We have a delicious drink for you. 
in this instance, start with your blood orange ginger beer as the the main star. And again, same substitutions if you can't find that. You can squeeze a blood orange. You can use grapefruit juice and bitters if you are amenable to them. Some people don't do bitters even at all if they're 100% alcohol free. And then you are going to add a half ounce of an elderflower syrup, which is pretty easy to get. Also, same thing, quarter ounce of almond syrup, three quarters or orja, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice. And I would actually just say skip the rum. Just double up on your blood orange ginger beer to three ounces. Because in this case, we're not using a spiced rum. We're using a white rum, a clear rum. And it it doesn't add to my palate in the final drink a significant element to the flavor profile. So you can skip it and just double up on your ginger beer, which is delicious anyway. That is the Blunt Force, which is st- stupidly delicious. I meant to make a drink that was mean and had, you know, that thing. Like when there are just some drinks that we joke it felt like I got slapped by this drink and I wanted to do that. And then I instead made something yummy in my tummy. So <laughs> I love this blood orange ginger beer addition to this. Oh, my God. Me too. Yeah. I literally found mine in my grocery store. I wasn't even on the regular soda aisle and I checked and a lot of grocery stores in my area carry it. So mm-hmm. I think it probably is not too hard to get just about anywhere, at least in the U.S. If you're outside the U.S., mm-hmm. I don't know because I also don't know what is available in your grocery stores that I don't have access to that would probably make me happy. Just for a weekend, just go shopping in each other's grocery stores. <laughs> I'm just going to f- I'm gonna fly to France Goodbye. and see what they have in their <laughs> grocery stores for the weekend. Sounds good. Be right back, babe. Going to go get groceries. Back in 48 in hours. Paris. <laughs> oh, great. As long as I have time for to hit my favorite bars of Paris and my favorite restaurants of Paris. Pack up some food and go home. Right? A little walk along the Seine. Sounds amazing. We are so grateful that you are hanging out with us to hear these stories and hear us talk about drinks. We will be right back here again next week with another story of blackmail and another coercion concoction. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional. You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.